want you to listen to this in Luke 8. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, Joanna, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. And when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, he spoke. And I, I just thought it was very interesting how people who had encountered Jesus and really benefited from his life found the privilege and the joy to be able to minister to him out of their substance. And that was financial giving. It was the way that these people who had been blessed by Jesus were able to come alongside of him and support the work that he was doing in various cities. And I believe that has been true of people in every generation. We read this all the way back in the book of Genesis, even when Abel was bringing his offerings to the Lord. It was the recognition of how good God had been. And I just pray that that would be the kind of heart that you and I have, that we had had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And Jesus has done some remarkable things in our life. As a matter of fact, if you've ever had an encounter with Jesus, you would probably say that what Jesus did for, mo for me, I would never be able to repay him. And you're very glad that you don't have to. You're very glad that you didn't have to buy this from Jesus because you couldn't have afforded it. But he gave to you out of his grace. But the response that people who have received from the Lord is the, is the joy of being able to support what he's doing in the earth. And that's what our tithes and offerings do. And so I just want to thank you for your faithful giving. I want to thank those of you who have had an encounter with Jesus. I just believe people who have had an encounter with Jesus are givers. I believe they're faithful with that and they love the Lord with that. So as you give this morning, maybe those of you even watching through the internet, they took that down already. But if you, if you want to just continue to give this way electronically, please do it. And um, I pray the Lord's blessings upon your life. I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 15 this morning. While you're turning there, I wanted to say what a beautiful night it was Wednesday. Um, it was just everything that I had believed and hoped for it to be in my heart. It was a beautiful night. Um, we look forward to February doing it the second Wednesday of the night. The, the room was filled up with people. Um, and so we think we'll have more next time because there's a lot of sickness going around. And by that time, I think everybody will have immunities and we'll be well. So um, we look forward to that. A lot of people out today through sickness and so forth. So we just want to be mindful of them. I want to talk to you this morning about this. The reason why God uses men. The reason why God uses men. And I wanted to read this in 1 Samuel 15. And, and I wanted to remind you that if you will remember, Esau is Sodom. And if you will remember that one of the first things that Israel faced in the wilderness, which was a constant threat to them, was Amalek. And Amalek was Esau's grandson. 
And as we saw the last two weeks, Amalek is a sign of the flesh. He's a type of the flesh. And God said that I will have war with Amalek from one generation to the next until I rid him from under the heaven. And um, and so there's no compromise with Amalek and there's no compromise with the flesh. And if you remember, the last part of what we talked about last week was God said, remember Amalek, remember him. And it's not that we remember our sins, but we remember the taxing and the obstacle of our flesh and, and that we don't give way to it. And so many times and so often we do. Like even when we go to church and maybe we're not very vocal, we're not praising God, we're not speaking prayers, we're not lifting our hands because our flesh gets in the way. And so it's just to put that down. But I want you to see this. This is a later contest with Amalek. This is after Israel is a nation. They even have a king now who is Saul. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you to be king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, hearken. Thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel and how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, both, both slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And that's a rough command, and I am not here to belabor that. That's what God said to do. It was right in the eyes of God, so it's right. And so that's God's business, and, and whether I can get my mind around that or not is not relevant to anything other than this is what God said to do, and he has his reasons for doing that. In verse 10, then came the word of the Lord to Samuel, saying, it repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a place and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And then Samuel came to Saul and said, and Saul said to him, blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what meaneth this, then this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord, your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. And so I wanted to just bring this out to us this morning as we consider the reason why God uses men. And when I think about this, I think about the people that God has used throughout history. This is certainly not an, uh, uh, an exhaustive list, but it's just kind of a quick overview of the people that God has used down through the history of mankind. Noah. And we understand that even after Noah built the ark and 
saved the world through the flood that he comes off of the ark, builds a vineyard and he gets drunk and he and and his sons, he's exposed to his sons. He curses one of his sons. And so here's a failing man. And certainly God knew he was going to do this after he got off of the ark. But God used Noah in spite of his sins and his failings. Abraham is another man that God used who was not a great man. He really wasn't. I don't think he would really be a great man by anybody's standards. Twice he put his own wife in another man's bed so that he wouldn't die. Now, what kind of man would do that? It certainly wouldn't be the kind of man that people would esteem very highly. But God did. And God chose Abraham to be his friend and to be the leader of a great nation. And then there's Jacob, who was conniving, and he was a thief. And and he was full of fault and full of sin and full of shortcomings. Judah, whom Jesus would come from. Um, was one of the patriarchs in the nation of Israel. And he had a, uh, he bought a prostitute who happened to be his daughter-in-law and had an incestuous relationship with her. Um, very horrible. Moses murdered a man. Um, and, and even in an effort to do the will of God, and he murdered a man. And even when he was leading the children of Israel in the wilderness, he had committed sin to where he couldn't bring the children into the promised land. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was an idolater who worshipped false idols until she had been confronted with the living God. There is David, who was not only a man after God's heart in worship, and who did so many wonderful things and did them right. He also did horrible things, and he did them as good as he did the bad, the good. I mean, he just did it all out. Solomon, with his thousands of relationships with women, and his his idolatry and the worship of idols, God would use him to write several books. That he would put into the Bible. And God would anoint him with wisdom to speak to the ages. And then there's Samson with all of his faults and his lust and his shortcomings. And yet these, John Mark is another one that we could mention. And or Peter denying the Lord three times after following Jesus for over three years. And, and God was able to take these men and these women. And he was able to use their life. And he was able to work through their life. And, and honestly, some of the, if not all, of the greatest servants that God has ever had were those who were exposed in, in their, their physical lives, their, their inability to be perfect. And their lives were exposed. Their sins were exposed. And the fault of humanity is... That we reject the work of God that's being done in people's lives and we throw people away because they have fallen or they have been exposed in sin. And who among us has not fallen in sin? You know, um, these guys just happen to be those whom God, for whatever reasons, needed to put their testimonies in the Bible, I think, to encourage us. And so the fact that God could use these guys, I think, gives hope to anybody in this room that if God can use them, he can use me. And he's certainly not looking for perfect people. So what is God looking for? Well, he rejected Saul. 
He rejected him. And here's a man who had a great start. I mean, he was chosen by God to be the king of Israel. It wasn't a vote by Israel. It was God's choice. And God gave him every advantage. But this man sins and God doesn't forgive him. God doesn't restore him. God doesn't let him continue. God says, I'm done with him. And it was as a result of what he had done with the Amalekites. He also would step into the role of being a minister or a priest and a king. And he would do things that were forbidden of him to do. And only the priest could do it. But in this story, we find that God had rejected him because he did not do to the Amalekites what God told him to do. And if the Amalekites would continue to be the symbol of the portrait of flesh and self, then we just understand this. That anybody who believes that they have something good in themselves to offer God. That that right there is where God stops using that person. But when a person begins to realize as Paul did in Romans chapter 7. There is in me that is in my flesh no good thing. Kill all of the Amalekites because there's nothing good to save. There's nothing at all in me that is worthy of God and his use. That is the person who will be used greatly of God. And so Saul in this portrait is taking something that represents the flesh and deciding himself this is good and worthy of God. When God had already said it is not good and I will not accept it. And a lot of times we do that ourselves. We certainly understand the bad of ourself. We certainly understand those things about our flesh that are ugly. Those things about our flesh that are corrupt and lust driven. That we easily confess to God as sin. And that we greatly desire God to set us free from. But the real problem that God has with humanity are those good things in your flesh. That you think are good. And God says that's a filthy rag to me. And that's what stands in our way. Most of the time. From God really being able to use us. And beloved. That is probably the reason. You get upset. Or disappointed. Because you thought that good thing in you. Would be good. When it turned out bad. And so I just want you to understand that. Now I'm going to use Moses as an example. For the rest of the time. About the reason why God uses men. And I want to start in Acts chapter 7. And we're going to go back to Exodus. But in Acts chapter 7. There's a testimony of Paul in verse 20. And it says. In which time Moses was born. And was exceeding fair. He was good looking. And nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out. Pharaoh's daughter took him up. And nourished him for her own son. And this is important. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now listen to this. He was mighty in words and in deeds. So just remember that he was mighty in words and in deeds, because a lot of times what we know about Moses was a man who could not speak, perhaps had a speech impediment, perhaps he stuttered, perhaps he wasn't. But 
his beginning was not that way. The Bible tells us very clearly while he was in Egypt, he was brilliant. He was studied. He was mighty in words and deeds. He was very confident in himself. In Hebrews chapter 11, we know what Moses knew. Because the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 that this was his faith. And this is before he ever left Egypt. And the Bible says this in verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. Because they saw he was a proper child. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. There's a message right there for our government and mandates and so forth. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. So Moses, while he was in Pharaoh's court, came to a place where he refused to be called that any longer. He made a choice to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. This is not when he was banished from Egypt, for then there would be no choice. This is when he was in Egypt, and he realized who he was. And he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. So by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And so this is what Moses knew. Let's put this together for just a moment. Moses was in Egypt. He was mighty. He was good looking. He was intelligent. He was mighty in word. He was mighty in deed. And there came a point that he knew who he was. And he knew that he was an Israelite. When he knew that, he became identified with his people and did not want to be recognized as an Egyptian. And he did not want that upon himself. And he rather would choose the reproach of Jesus than the wealth of Egypt. And that was his choice. There was something special about Moses and he knew it. Theologians believe that Moses knew that he was raised up by God to be the deliverer of Israel from Egyptian bondage. Because God had given Abraham a promise 400 years earlier that your descendants will be slaves in the land of Egypt. But I will visit them after 400 years and I will raise up a deliverer to set them free. And Moses believed that he was that deliverer. His birth, his his saving birth was a miracle. That he ended up in the house of Pharaoh was a miracle. That he grew up as a prince in Egypt was a miracle. I mean, intellectually, everything lined up that Moses would set Israel free. And he chose to be identified with Israel. And he chose the reproach of Jesus Christ. And back in Exodus chapter 2. And we're going to stay here the rest of this morning. But in Exodus chapter 2, I want you to see this about Moses' life and his testimony and what would come of this. So in chapter 2, verse 11. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brothers and looked on their burdens. He spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his own brothers. So now he knows he's a Hebrew. And he looked this way and that way. I mean, he knew he was about to do something wrong. So he's looking to see if anybody's watching. And so he knows it. Now listen, he's already chosen Christ over Egypt. 
He's already living by faith and he is about to commit the act of murder. This is strong. And so he does this and he's looking this way and he's looking that way just to see if anybody is watching. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and he hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews fought together. And he said to him that did the wrong, why are you smiting your your brother? And he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. Now when Moses heard this thing, Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. And so he would end up getting married. And he would spend 40 years in the desert tending sheep. And during this period of time, there is no record that Moses has an encounter with God. His life of faith started at least 40 years prior to this. He now has a criminal record as a man of faith. And for all intents and purposes, he probably believes that I was absolutely wrong. I'm not the deliverer of Israel, and there's no way God can use somebody like me. Perhaps these are thoughts in his mind. No doubt his conscience would trouble him. So during this time of 40 years in the wilderness, what did he become? He became what Paul became. He became what Peter became. He became a man who realized that he was absolutely incapable That's what he became. And in becoming that, he was now the candidate to be the deliverer of Israel. That is where God is trying to bring all of us. Yet how we fight to hold on to something good in ourselves that makes us feel worthy. And so here's the encounter now that we have with Moses after he becomes this. And Exodus 3 verse 11 Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? If you had asked Moses this about 45 years earlier, he probably would have had a great list of reasons why he should be that man. But now he doesn't. And so he just says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then he tells us in chapter 4, verse 10, if you just read this, he says, And Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. Neither therefore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. That's not the way he was in Egypt. He was mighty in word and deed. This is a broken man. This is a man who has no confidence in himself, and he has certainly learned that. And so he's broken, and he's humbled. He's nothing in his own eyes. So what did Moses learn? And this is the lesson, and this is what is so important, because I believe that when God is bringing us to our end, or God is exposing us of sin, whoever it might be, it could be the person sitting next to you, it could be a minister, it could be a preacher, it could be a missionary, it could be a spouse, it could be a child, and their sin gets exposed. Why? So the church can kill them. 
So the church can throw them away. So the church can hold them up in front of everybody and say, you are good for nothing and you're worthless and you'll never have value in the body of Christ again. Sit down, shut up, and hope that you get to heaven when you die. And that's the way the church has treated people for a long, long time. But that's not the way God wants us to treat people. And that's not the way God wants us to treat his people. So sometimes when things are exposed, what is God doing? I'm bringing a man or a woman to nothing. And when they get to this place, then they're going to realize everything. And that's what I want them to realize. And that's hope for every one of us. Because if people knew your secrets, you would be absolutely embarrassed, right? And so he tells us this in Exodus chapter 3. And and, and as we come to this, this is what I want you to see that Moses learned. In Exodus 3 verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside And see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, draw not near hither, put off your shoes from off your feet for the place Whereon you stand is holy ground. And moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And I want you to see this in chapter 4. Moses answered and said, But behold, They will not believe me, nor hearken to my voice, for they will say, the Lord has not appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said to Moses, put forth your hand, take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and he caught it and it became a rod in his hand. And then in chapter 3, going back there again, verse 11 and 12. I want to read it again. And Moses said to God, who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh? And that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be a token unto you that I have sent you. When you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. And so there's a few things I just want you to see that God was doing with Moses That God desperately needed Moses to learn and he wants all of us to know and Moses would come to know it. The miracle was that God was in the bush. The miracle was that God could transform a rod into a serpent like that. And God could take the serpent and make it a rod like that. 
From something that's inanimate to something that's life. From something that's life to something that's inanimate with no effort, God can do it. And that was the miracle that God would be in Moses. That was the miracle. That was the answer. That was everything. Moses, you can sin. Moses, you can fail. Moses, you can lose all of your confidence. That's what you can do. But when I'm with you, we can deliver Israel. And that is the miracle. And that's what God wanted Moses to know. And that's why God uses men. Because God wants to put himself into men or women. And God wants to use them greatly and powerfully. And so he said to Moses in chapter 3, and I love this. He says this, that God was going to give Moses a token. And this token was the fact that God, now read this again because I think it's important. In verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12, certainly I will be with you and this shall be a token unto you. And the token that I'm with you is going to be that I'm with you and you will stand with Israel on this mountain. And so I took a picture of this Hebrew word token, if you can put it up. I want you to see this because I think it's very interesting. And it is a symbol, and this is the way Hebrew words are. They're pictures. They're not letters, but they're pictures. And so that's the picture of the word token. A man with his hands raised, a cross or a mark, and an, and an ox head. And that's the picture of the word token. And God encounters Moses, and God says to Moses, I will give you this token. Now, what is interesting is this. The word token, by definition, is a miraculous sign of proof. That's what the word means. A miraculous sign of proof. The miraculous sign of proof is the proof that something has moved near to something else in order to be with it and join itself to it. The token is a symbol of a man. In surrender, it is the symbol of a cross, and it is the symbol of an ox. The man in surrender, the ox with power, and the cross as the means by which the two can meet. If a token is God saying, I'm going to be with you, then the only way God can be with Moses is through the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 11 tells us Moses knew this. And he believed that the reproach of Jesus was worth more than all of the wealth of Egypt. Because what did Moses know? Moses knew that in Jesus' cross and in Jesus' sacrifice, God could join himself with Moses. And God could take a weak and broken man and make him strong. Thus the symbol of the ox. And that brings us to what Jesus said in Matthew. Come unto me all you that are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you strength. Take my yoke upon you. The verbiage of an ox plowing and doing the work. Which I think is something absolutely remarkable. 
So God is telling Moses in Exodus chapter 3, thousands of years before it will ever be done. This is the picture that Moses would draw. When Moses would write these books, that's what he would draw. Himself surrendering through the cross in order to be joined with the omnipotent God. And that would be the token. And their deliverance would be the proof of it. Isn't that marvelous? And every one of us have access to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Thus the grace of God. Where God can join himself to men and women who are surrendering themselves to him through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And regardless of the failures of the history, God can take broken people and do miracles through their life. Praise God. This is absolutely beautiful. And so what did Moses learn? And you can take that down. Thank you for doing that. And just to move on from this in verse 4. Of chapter 3. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. The Lord called to him out of the midst of the bush. And Moses said Moses Moses. And Moses said here am I. And God tells him to be careful drawing near. Take his shoes off. And the thing that I I want to bring out to you. And this is another aspect of the reason why God uses men. Is because it's the men, the women that have time for God. Now, a lot of people don't have time for God. They're too busy in the things of God to have time with God. Too busy in the religion of God to have time with God. And this is a disaster. Because the anointing does not come from seeing the need or even being given an assignment. Moses was given an assignment 40 years earlier. But the ability to fulfill that assignment did not come from his his. His uh, access to the things of Egypt, his ability to fulfill that call came from being with God. And this is the important thing. And God knows those who take the time to come aside to see the wonders of God. I'd ask you a question. When was the last time God wowed you? When was the last time God awed you? You were in awe of him. I was telling the pastors that joined with us last Tuesday. I said, you know, one of the tragedies today is Jesus is nobody's hero. He's really not. He's like the hood ornament on a car. Or he's like the mascot for the ball team. He's the symbol of what it's all about. But he's not the player. He's not the one that we really rally around. We rally around the quarterback. or We rally around the really great defensive player. But Jesus is the hero. And he wants to Moses. And I would, I would again just lay the question out for all of you guys here. When was the last time you just sat in awe of God? And your answer to that is probably the proof... That he's not your hero. But he wants to be. And he needs to be. And every day of your life. There are events that God is setting up for you to see his power. So that you will stop and pull aside and just sit there. And when God sees that you see. He's going to speak to you. And he's going to anoint you. 
To be able to do what he told you years ago he was going to do. But he's going to be able to do it now. Because he has made a token with you. And he has come to you. This is, a, this is a beautiful thing. And what does God want people to know? Exodus 4 verse 5. This is what God wants people to know. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared unto you. I want men to know that I met with you. When I have an encounter with you, I'm going to do something miraculous in your life so that the people around you know it. Because I'm jealous for that. God wanted the people to know. And beloved, God wants the people to know that about your life. So when you talk about the presence of God or that you've been with God or that you love God or you're a Christian and Jesus lives in your heart. I think people legitimately around us get to ask the question, well, where's the proof of that? There's a lot of good people. What's the proof that God has really been with you? And God gave that proof through Moses' life. And so I want to talk to you about this really quickly, about being too busy to see God, too busy to see God. Perhaps when Moses is in the desert and he is tending to the sheep and he has taken them around from one pasture to the next, leading them through a lot of barren places that he encounters in the heat of the desert, a bush that's on fire, but it's not burning up. It's not uncommon to see a bush on fire in the desert. But what's uncommon is to see that the bush is not being consumed by the fire. This is unique. I think I'll stop, turn aside, and see it. Perhaps Moses approaches the bush. Perhaps he's looking at the bush. Maybe Moses is studying the bush and he's saying, what an amazing bush. How unique is the bush? How wonderful is this bush? I wonder if this bush does this every day. I wonder how long this bush has been burning. This bush is different than every other bush because it's the only one that is burning. And God just begins to speak to him out of the bush. Hey, Moses, any bush will do. There's nothing special about the bush. It's just the fact that God chose this bush to burn in. And that's the way a lot of times we are. We look at people in history. We may look at people who are making an impact for God in our present day today. And we say, oh, what a bush. What an incredible bush. Maybe it's Spurgeon or Finney or Whitfield or Wilkerson or Ravenhill or somebody like that. We say, oh, God, what a bush. What a bush they were. Look at John Wesley. God, what a bush. Oh, God, how he burned for you. What a bush. And God would just say, any Wesley will do. Any Spurgeon will do. Any Wilkerson will do. It's not the bush. It's the God who came on the bush. It's the God who came on the person. It's the person who would let me burn in them. And there's not a lot of fire of the Holy Ghost in people's lives. And that's why Jesus isn't the hero. And that's why so many Christians are not awed by God. And by the masses, the fastest growing movement in the world today is occultism. Because of the reality of it. 
And the unreality that is in Christianity, because even Christians are not impressed with God. And it's not because God's not there, and it's not because God is not trying to impress us. We don't have time for God. We've got to do this, and we've got to do this, and we're running here, and we're running there, and we're doing all of these things. And what's so unique about them, I remember I had the the great honor of serving on the board with the School of Christ International. I had the great honor of serving on the board before Pastor Clendenin died. And then after he died and picking up the pieces and trying to continue the ministry and keep it going. And then having an ability to be able to help their church and serve and be with their, just be an advisor to their council, their deacons, their elders. And had this wonderful privilege and everybody, you know, not everybody, but the common thing would just try to do everything through Clendenin's eyes. And and I just spoke up and I said, you know what was unique about Brother Clendenin? He did what God wanted him to do. And do you know where this is going to be destroyed? When you do what Clendenin wants you to do. The marvelous thing about Spurgeon or Wesley or Wilkerson or Ravenhill or Clendenin or, or any of these people was the fact that they saw God, knew God, and did what God showed them to do. But people come along in history and they look at Wesley and say, how was Wesley so effective in London? How was he so effective in Europe? And I want to develop the habits of Wesley so that I can be effective on the streets in America. But Wesley didn't model somebody else. He saw God stopped, came aside, sat with God, went out, and God started an awakening through his life. Because he walked with God. And yet we're too busy mimicking people. And it's copyism. It's not spirituality. It's just copyism. And so I believe that the great need and why God uses men is because they're brought to nothing. They lose all confidence. They know without a doubt that they are a wretched sinner apart from the grace of God. That they come to a place of such hunger that they know, I need God to join himself to me. And that is only going to happen through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then I'm going to take time to be with God. And from being with God, I will become a bush that's on fire. And God will be able to demonstrate through my life, somehow, somewhere... To somebody that I have been with God. And that's the unique thing among humanity. Not religion, not churches, not preaching, not teaching, not good works, not humanitarianism. The unique thing in history with humans is that some people walked with God. And God walked with them and they were on fire. And that's why Jesus said that I will give you the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. And that is why Hebrews says that he makes his ministers flames of fire. And so I ask you to let him burn in you. Maybe somebody will stop and come see. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would bring your anointing upon our life. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony that you've given us of men and women in the Bible who came to nothing. But in becoming nothing, becoming broken, 
losing all confidence and becoming weak, your grace rested upon them and your strength was their power and their lives were changed. Today, Father, many people are trying to mimic people, trying to become the image of what their movement wants them to be. But Lord, I just pray that men and women will walk with you and hear you and allow you to break them. And God, let us be the kind of people that won't let the church throw them away. Let us watch the work of grace in their life. Let us love one another and help each other make it. Because Lord, throughout history, it's the broken people that you used. There's only very, very few, such as Daniel or Joseph, where exposure of moral failure did not occur. The majority of them were exposed. Father, I pray that you would bring strength to your church in this hour. Because we're the ones that you use. And thank you for this token. That you can draw near to us through the cross of Jesus. And give us yourself and make us strong.